Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks. Tonight, we're going to explore... Man, can we just stop the whole fake intro thing? At least skip it tonight. I'm just really tired and want to get this episode over with. Why are you so tired? The kid been keeping you up? Nah, we dumped her off at the in-laws for the weekend so the wife and I could catch up on a Golden Girls marathon and I haven't slept for like two and a half days. So the sooner we wrap this up, the sooner I can go to bed. You know you're being a real Bernice right now? Do you mean Blanche? I don't know. I've never seen the show. Have you never watched Golden Girls? Because I was a seven-year-old boy when the show was on TV? Seriously? It's an institution that's been around for over 40 years. Then I'm sorry that all I know about B. Arthur is her contribution to the movie's Airhead and that one episode of Futurama. That's unacceptable. B. Arthur's a legend and an icon. Not to mention you throw in Estelle Getty, Rue McClanahan, and Betty White. It's comedy gold. It transcends time. Though it's so dated and obviously an 80s show, it still works once every two weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge hosted by two guys who've been friends since high school join us mark and tom as we examine old hits forgotten favorites and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward angst-filled teenage years five albums at a time Hello, Thomas. You sound very energetic tonight. I am. Didn't you hear me say I was not exhausted at all? (laughs) Excellent. I finally started new Futurama. What are your thoughts on it? I like how openly self-aware they are of who they are, what they've been through, and uh, how they got brought back. It's really funny. Yeah, I think they've done a good job of that very thing every time they've been renewed. They have. This one really struck, though. Just how much they were willing to make fun of Hulu for picking them up. Yes. I will say it does bother me at the beginning and it says a Hulu original series. And it's like, uh, is it really though? Right, right, right. They did the same thing when Netflix brought back Arrested Development. They called it a Netflix original. And it's like, mmm, cute, but no. Right. But I'm not going to complain too much because thanks to our friends at Hulu, we are getting new episodes of Futurama. Yeah. If that's the biggest complaint I have about new Futurama, then I can handle it because more Futurama is always better than less. It is. I agree. My wife, on the other hand, not so much. Really? Not a Futurama fan? Not even a little bit. You think you know someone when you marry them, Mark, and then you find out, bam, they don't like Futurama. Well, I've never married her, so I don't think I know her. I've got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all have had some cool happenings over at Burrow Baracho Records, right, Mark? We have. All of our bands had stuff that they put out before streaming really became a thing. And so we are just wrapping up a series of new old music. We've got some stuff that's coming out soon from Charles Ellsworth, a series of live performances that he's done recently. And he just finished up in the studio tracking what's going to be his next record. Ooh, exciting times for that and we've also been talking the last few days with a friend of ours who's a musician he's put some stuff out and he's had a couple other bands that were mildly successful and he hit us up and was like hey i've got this new album would you guys be interested in putting it out and i love everything that he does and i've been wanting to try to find out how to get him on board for a while and he came to us and who is it nothing's entirely official yet so i'm not going to name names ah You're just going to tease me. (laughs) We can talk about it later when no one's listening. How is that different from our podcast? (laughs) 
We're switching things up tonight, aren't we? We are. We're breaking format. <gasps> Welcome to the first ever, once every two weeks, One Hit Wonder Roundup. This whole idea kind of came from us talking a few weeks ago as to what album to do. And you had suggested that, okay, let's do Primitive Radio Gods next. And I was kind of like, eh, I don't know. And then I went and I kind of listened through it and some of the songs. I was like, okay, I can actually get on board with this. And started researching and realized that there's really not enough for a whole episode. And as much as we'd love to hear ourselves talk, we're not going to put the three people who listen to this through that. So... Nope. We'll talk about Primitive Radio Gods, and then we've got a handful of others that we're going to go through. All right, let's talk about a little bit of good old-fashioned Chris O'Connor. Yeah, and if you don't recognize the name, you're probably not alone on that. In the late 80s, Chris O'Connor fronted a band called The Irels. They put out four albums, all of which got them pretty much nowhere. <laughs> so the band broke up in late 1990, early 91, and while mildly dissatisfied with that outcome, O'Connor took an unused batch of song ideas that would have been the start of the IRL's never-to-be fifth album. He bought a sampling keyboard and, playing around with those song ideas in a friend's garage, developed those tracks until he had about ten songs. He was satisfied he had enough material to serve as a passable demo to shop around, and he started sending those songs out under the moniker of Primitive Radio Gods a name that he had previously used as a song title on an IRL's track from their third album. And much like his previous band's previous efforts, he had about the same lack of luck. Possibly in part because he had misspelled primitive. <laughs> Regardless, O'Connor gave up on music to focus on his real job as an air traffic controller at LAX, or at least for a couple of years. As he put it in an interview in 2015, I quit playing music... I worked, and I drank. In 1994, O'Connor was doing some house cleaning, and he came across a box of those primitive Radio God tapes. And since he was mildly dissatisfied with having a day job and his lack of prior success, he decided that he would pull a Hail Mary, and he sent the remaining demos to every record label he could think of. And somehow that actually worked. Jonathan Daniel, who was an executive in the New York office of Fiction Records, gave it a listen and the track, standing outside a broken phone booth with money in my hand, caught his attention enough that he called O'Connor and offered him a record deal in conjunction with Columbia Records. There were some slight remastering efforts, like they had to recreate what had originally been a sample of a televangelist, but since they were unable to obtain clearances to use the original source, as that televangelist was at the time too busy focusing on a federal investigation and a lawsuit against him over claims of fraud, <laughs> there were some little tweaks like that that they had to make on the album, but those aside, for the most part, that demo tape became the album Rocket which also happens to be the name of track 10 on the album. In the process of getting Rocket ready for release, someone at the label thought Phone Booth would be a great fit to use in a new upcoming Jim Carrey movie. O'Connor was given a script, and instead of just accepting the incredible stroke of luck he had somehow stumbled upon, he was mildly dissatisfied with this idea of his song being associated with the movie Cable Guy. Hmm. Talking about it in a November 96 interview, O'Connor said, I just didn't see the connection between that movie and my somber song. It belongs more on the soundtrack to Leaving Las Vegas or something. 
thinks pretty highly of his song. Yeah. Cable Guy director Ben Stiller had to reach out to O'Connor and talk him into it. <laughs> That's funny. Having won the favor of the label guys and its inclusion in a major motion picture soundtrack, standing outside a phone booth with money in my hand was the obvious choice of lead single for the album. And as a single, it was released June 11th of 1996. Cable Guy the movie was released June 14th. And Rocket the album was released June 18th. And just like that, Primitive Radio Gods, this time Sans Typo, was a real band. However, despite the success of Phone Booth, the album as a whole was met with fairly negative reviews, some of it unfounded. Reviewers like to focus on the fact that standing outside a broken phone booth with money in my hand is an anomaly on the album, and it is. Long before YouTube and the never-ending lo-fi chill playlists, Phone Booth was ahead of its time, and it came out of nowhere offering a simple pseudo-hip-hop beat, some understated sloppy sad piano work, and pensive mumbled lyrics, complete with soulful BB King vocal samples. It's mellow and melancholy, and it bums you out in all the best ways. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I remember picking this album up and like all of those reviews being mildly dissatisfied with the album as a whole. Yep. Or at least thinking that it was odd that there wasn't another track on the album that even tried to go for a similar vibe as Phone Booth. No, that was an anomaly on the album. Yeah, the rest of the album is all very guitar driven. When I would go to pick up this album and listen to it, I would have expected playing more with different sounds and less traditional 90s band feel. Yeah, for the era, maybe something a little more trip-hop. Yeah, yeah. When listening to the album as a whole for the first time in probably 25 years, that remained very clear. But on my recent listenings, I did find that despite that fact, for the most part, I enjoyed the rest of the album at least as much, possibly even more than I thought I did, or than I thought I would. And I'd argue that faulting the album for not having another song like Phone Booth is the wrong approach. Yeah, I would too. Sure, Phone Booth is the big hit. It's what introduced everyone to the band. But after listening to the album as a whole, what I don't understand is, in all of those reviews, why no one ever asked why the hell Phone Booth was on this album in the first place. To me, that might be the biggest mystery of the album. All the other guitar-driven tracks very much feel like a cohesive whole, like they belong together. They're not perfect. O'Connor, I won't even say he's a great guitar player. He's competent. All of those other tracks, they feel like they were all played by the same person who is a competent enough guitarist to make decent driving guitar rock, but not quite playing at a level to blow anyone away, which at the time was especially noticeable and problematic because in that post-grunge world, while Even though the grunge tones were never super clean, all the guitarists were amazing. Mm -hmm. Name me a grunge band who had a bad guitarist. I can't. No, no, you can't. Regardless, there's still a couple tracks on the album, like Opener Woman and Are You Happy, that still manage to fall somehow into a nice groove with good driving energy that keeps the track moving forward in all the best ways possible. But on the whole, the album, apart from Phone Booth, does constantly show its age. That guitar work and those riffs and the tones all on re-listening left me surprised that this wasn't better received in a pre-grunge era because to me, it sounds like O'Connor achieved a very nice balance of mall-era Ganga 4 with Manic Street Preacher ambitions. So it's a great end-of-the-80s rock carrying over into 90s sound because that's what it was. It was recorded in 91 by a dude who was in a band that had been playing rock music at the end of the 80s. 
Another thing that those reviews all failed to ask was why a batch of songs recorded as a demo tape in 91, released practically as is in 1996, was never re-recorded, updated. Yeah. I'd love to know why someone didn't put O'Connor up in the studio somewhere with a modern producer for a week or two to just lay it all down again with a studio band. They could have updated the tone. They could have polished the songs to feel more like finished versions. And brought some of that unique sound that everybody was used to by then. Right. If they knew that Phone Booth was going to be hit, maybe take the songs a bit more in that direction. But more importantly, while they were at it, they could have also revised some of the record's potentially problematic lyrics. Like instances of excessive misogyny, which I guess was on brand for rock and roll in the late 80s. But they could have also done something about where he uses the N-word while trying to make an earnest plea against bigotry and racism. And I don't know why they didn't bother doing this, but maybe that's the point. Maybe what the big label saw when they opened up their mail and found Primitive Radio Gods wasn't phone booth as a one in a million diamond the rough find, but rather what they saw was O'Connor as some rube at the sending in of that album that they could quickly, easily, and cheaply chew up for one single and spit out for practically no cost themselves. I mean, it would have been easy because everything was there for it, right? Yeah. It was already in place. It just, it needed to be polished. Absolutely. In that same interview I mentioned previously from 2015, O'Connor was asked how his outlook has changed over the years as he's gotten older and more experienced with the music industry. Twitch in his normal fashion of avoiding direct interview questions, he quoted Hunter S. Thompson in a reply saying, The music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. <laughs> Even at the start of the hype, as he was beginning to find that fame that he wanted by sending the tapes out. He somehow was mildly dissatisfied with being successful. Yeah. And he was known for avoiding interviews at all costs. And when he did give them, he was often cryptic or combative with his answers. And there were a lot of things that he did that he has since admitted that were kind of burning all the bridges behind him, including... When it came time for Primitive Radio Gods to pick a second single to follow up Phone Booth, he picked track two on the album, which is a song entitled Mother Effer. It doesn't say effer. <laughs> and the lyrics include that phrase throughout the song, which as a single instantly makes it a non-starter. So while it's possible that the label did take advantage, it feels like even if they weren't, he would have been self-sabotaging his own career anyway, and standing outside a broken phone booth with money in my hand would still be the only lasting contribution the fates had in store for us from the band Primitive Radio Gods. Yeah, I listened to the rest of the album, but nothing hit nothing hit me the way Phone Booth did, which is a song I still listen to regularly. Absolutely, it's still a great song, despite having a ridiculously long title. Do you know where he got the title? I do not. He stole the title from a song by Bruce Cockburn, and at the time, O'Connor thought he had stolen the title word for word, only later to realize that he somewhere along the way had gotten it wrong and added the word standing in front of what Cockburn had named outside a broken phone booth with money in my hand. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. The song starts, as I mentioned, with a vocal sample of legendary guitarist B.B. King, which is odd that you sample B.B. King's vocals because that's not what he's known for, but the sample he used is from the song How Blue Can You Get? Hmm. 
Lyrically, the song is about a man who is unable to connect emotionally with his partner, and in retrospect, since phone booths themselves are no longer around, so the concept of them as a metaphor for the desire for human connection may now be null and void, I would like to point out that with all that other backstory of the band, the song is now unintentionally a solid metaphor for Connor's relationship with the music biz. Yeah. Standing outside a broken phone booth with money in my hand. You gotta say the whole thing. It's like a tribe called Quest. (laughs) It peaked at number one on the U.S. Billboard Modern Rock chart and the adult alternative song charts. It reached number two in Canada and number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 Airplay chart. Despite the fact that the album as a whole isn't great because of the strength of Phone Booth, it still sold over 500,000 units. So Rocket did somehow achieve certified gold status. I mentioned that most of the reviews were fairly negative, and unsurprising, the most unjustifiably and unnecessarily scathing review of Rocket came from Pitchfork? Yes. Uh-huh. Imagine that. I care so little about them. I'm not even going to bother switching over to the window to look at the actual quotes. But it said something along the lines of phone booth doesn't deserve to be in your CD collection and you should save your money. And then it goes so far as to pat itself on its own back and be like, but you probably already knew this because you have great taste in music because you're reading Pitchfork. Wow. Yeah, it's very self-serving. I was just like, wow, suck yourself off harder, Pitchfork. Gross. I know. Pitchfork is disgusting. All right. So... The song holds up. The album itself does not. I don't know. I I have mixed feelings about the whole thing. I want to be sympathetic to somebody who's trying to make it. But then the second that he makes it, he's just dissatisfied with everything. He's dissatisfied with fame. He's dissatisfied with success. And these things that he was trying to get because he was dissatisfied with not having fame or success. It's like there's something obviously deeper at play here. You just need to give him a hug and ask who hurt you. Rocket as a whole, like you said, does not hold up. Standing outside a broken phone booth with money in my hand as a song, as a single, as a piece of actual music and not just disposable pop noise. Yes, that does, I think, still hold up nicely. And to close out this first entry in our roundup, I'm going to wrap it up with a portion of an article written by Michael Yellen for Glide Magazine from an article in November of 2014 entitled Back Off, Jerk! Primitive Radio Gods Standing Outside a Broken Phone Booth with Money in My Hand. The article is kind of a defense of the song, and he says, Why does all of this work? What saves Standing Outside a Broken Phone Booth from indie rock oblivion? More to the point, why has the song outlasted phone booths themselves? One reason is that the song oozes the feel of the mid-90s, an adhere between the overweening pride of baby boomers and the chemically enhanced optimism of millennials, the muted tones of the song, the very lack of ambition conveyed by its lo-fi soundscape, is a nice respite from the mean-spirited smackdowns of reality cooking shows and the constant work anniversary reminders on LinkedIn. Nostalgic? Sure. The why-can't-I-love-you narrative of O'Connor's opus continues to resonate in an age when Edward Snowden is the only person who believes in intimacy. And, of course, walking down a street with no cell phone coverage is just as lonely as standing outside a broken phone booth with money in your hand. (laughs) Cool. Okay. I think I'm awake now. 
So next up, we're going to cover the wallflowers. Chances are you've heard them. We were originally looking at them for One Head Light. And as research remembered, hey, they had this other song that was pretty popular that did not resonate as much with me called Sixth Avenue Heartache. I do remember that one. I had forgotten about it until you just said that. Right. The Wallflowers was a band that is started by Jacob Dylan. Jacob Dylan being the son of musical legend Robert Zimmerman. Maybe you know him as Bob Dylan. Growing up, Jacob Dylan shied away from his dad's notoriety. He tried to, to stay out of his dad's shadow. He wanted to do other things. Songwriting and being a musician was not his initial dream in life. Huh. In high school, he played in various bands, had some stuff, but he went to Parsons School of Design to study art and just kind of couldn't escape this band scene. I mean, just imagine a guy who writes the music that defines a decade every decade, right? I can imagine it would be super hard to try writing songs as somebody who's the son of who's considered to be the greatest living songwriter of all time. Yeah. But on the plus side, if you can actually carry a tune, then it kind of balances out. If people can understand the songs that you're singing, I think it's a good thing. Exactly. So after dropping out of Parsons, Jacob went back to L.A., hooked up with his friend Toby Miller, and in the late 80s started a band called The Apples. The other two guys who joined their band ended up leaving. They brought on some new guys who had eventually changed their name to The Wallflowers. They had Barry McGuire on bass, Peter Yanowitz on drums, and Rami Jaffe on keyboards, and also did the organ, which was something that they did that was a little uh, divisive for them at times. They signed on to Virgin Records. They released their first album. And the criticism that came was their first album was almost like a live recording. It wasn't edited and it did not do well at all. Less than 50,000 copies sold. I'm just laughing at that because we talked about on the last episode how bands, when they get successful and have big studio money, they try to recreate their live sound. Yes. So it just goes to show that nobody's going to be satisfied no matter what you do. So just do whatever. Just do what sounds good to you. Exactly. They did tour, though, even though they they weren't getting that fame. They toured with some big names at the time. They were close to 10,000 Maniacs. And as a matter of fact, Yanowitz went on to date Natalie Merchant later. Hmm. And he ended up leaving the Wallflowers to play with 10,000 Maniacs. By the time they went on to do their debut album, they had parted ways from Virgin Records, supposedly amicable on both sides. And they were signed by Interscope Records in 95 and began recording their next album. Now, they changed things up. They readily acknowledged the failure of their first album was in producing of the album. And so they brought on T-Bone Burnett. And T-Bone Burnett was one of the people who helps jumpstart the Counting Crows. He's a Grammy Award winner. It should be no surprise why he went to work with Jacob Dylan. He was Bob Dylan's bandmate. Mm -hmm. Back as a guitarist. As a producer, he worked with Brandy Carlisle. He worked with the Punch Brothers. He worked with... I'm just looking at everybody here. It's kind of insane. He's done a lot. Yes, he also did a lot of movies. Didn't he compose for Jeff Bridges' Crazy Heart? Yeah, he did Crazy Heart. He did Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The Big Lebowski, Great Balls of Fire, The Lady Killers, Hunger Games Film Score, and The Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. So, with T-Bone in play, they released their second album, Mm -hmm. which has a little bit more attention. People are now listening to 
And in 96, they released the album Bringing Down the Horse, which had two radio hits, One Headlight and Sixth Avenue Heartache. The interesting thing in how they sold the Wallflowers, all focus was on Jacob Dylan. He had the name, he had the face, he had those blue eyes. The first music video they did was for Sixth Avenue Heartache, and David Fincher, of all people, directed the music video. Nice. And it featured Adam Duritz. Hmm. And it was the first song they played when they were featured on Saturday Night Live. Cool. They were nominated for two Grammys, both for Sixth Avenue Heartache. They didn't win either, but they were nominated. And they went on tour with Sheryl Crow. The next year, in 97, they went ahead and released One Headlight in February. And I would say it was everywhere possible. Prior to that release, they had gone gold, sold 500,000 copies. After they released One Headlight, they quickly went platinum so just three months later they went from 500,000 to selling over 1 million copies and within six weeks they more than doubled that going double platinum so i mean this was a hit absolutely they were a huge hit they sold out all over the place jacob dylan was on the cover of rolling stone they eventually went on and they headlined rock fest back in 97 and after that they went triple platinum status so they really were everywhere and it was interesting found more retrospective on bringing down the horse and these two songs than i did information at the time it was released yeah and i liked one of the things that i read in a retrospective article from t-bone where he said i can't imagine a more daunting specter to have for a father especially if you're a young singer songwriter I don't know if you know this, but they ended up reaching number 74 on the Billboard's Top 200 in 96, right between MTV Party to Go Volume 10 and ESPN Presents Jock Jams Volume 1. They had a couple of other songs off of this album, Three Marlenas and Josephine and God Don't Make Lonely Girls. Okay. I can listen to Three Marlenas and Josephine. God Don't Make Lonely Girls just sounds bad. It's it's just... Oh. It's got this awful, like, it sounds like a 45-year-old rocker who's still playing every night thinking his band's going to get picked up. So you're saying God don't make lonely girls, but he does let good bands put out mediocre music? Oh, that's definitely what this whole album is about. Okay. The album's not bad. It's very generic. And that's one of the hard things I had when I was looking into this. Even if we listen to the two big hits that we're talking about, they don't really fit into anything. They're just very generic radio play, which is why I think One Headlight will live in infamy on the greatest of all times adult alternative songs. Hmm. It is number one. Okay. Now, as I tell you, the other songs on this list, that will seem less impressive. It's got Clocks by Coldplay, 3AM, Matchbox 20, Feel It Still by Portugal the Man, followed by Drops of Jupiter by Train. I then got on a tangent and looked at the greatest of all time adult alternative artists. And who do you think number one is? Your mom. Very close. Dave Matthews Band. Huh? Dave Matthews Band reminds me very much of my mom. Really? Counting Crows are number eight and Death Cab for Cutie is number nine. Beck came in at number 11. The Wallflowers came in at number 12. Wow. I know. Funny tidbit, we talk about how difficult it was for Jacob Dylan. This album, Bringing Down the Horse, sold more copies than any of Bob Dylan's albums. Good for him. One Headlight starts. It just sounds very adult, alternative 90s. It's got a heavy guitar, and it's 
just following the voice of Jacob Dylan. He's kind of got this raspy, low voice. The thing I always liked about this were the lyrics. He, I don't know, he's just got some great one-liners in here. Like he talks about listening to stuff through the cemetery trees. And she said it's cold. It feels like Independence Day. And I can't break away from this parade. The one that really got me. Through this maze of ugliness and greed. And I've seen the sign up ahead at the county line bridge saying all is good and nothingness is dead. It's just got a great feel. It's very emotive. He's descriptive. The music slaps. It's great. This song holds up. Good. I wasn't a big Sixth Avenue Heartache fan back in the day. I'm still not. I think it says something about both songs that Sixth Avenue Heartache, it got them some sales, but one headlight doubled the sales in a fraction of the time. So I think that says something about the two tracks. I would say not just because they're listed as the greatest of all time adult alternative songs. One Headlight and the album in general hold up pretty well. Okay. If I have to choose between listening to Primitive Radio Gods or The Wallflowers, hands down Wallflowers every day. I respect your opinion, even if a Primitive Radio Gods fan might find it insensitive. (laughs) Next is Jan Arden and her album entitled Living Under June with the track insensitive so for some reason i actually remember when i picked this album up i was with you you and i we were probably bored and we did what we did a lot when we were bored we went to cd warehouse and considering what i walked out with that day i don't think we went with any agenda because i got this jan arden cd used it was like five bucks so i was like okay sure why not and i also found the first third eye blind album used and that's probably the reason why i remember this shopping trip because when i was checking out i have this vivid memory that the guy behind the counter was ringing me up and he's like hey you know we also just got in the second third eye blind album and I remember looking at him and be like, yeah, but it sucks. <laughs> and he's like, okay, fair point. And it turns out that like a year later, when I was working for Warehouse Music, I ended up making friends with that guy. He used to come in and bring all of the promos that his store got and would try to sell them as used CDs. And I would buy them from him. And then I'd take all the promos I could get from my store and I'd take them over to CD Warehouse and sell them to him. <laughs> We ended up becoming friends, and we haven't stayed in touch. I miss Steven. He was a good dude. But I was with him when I met the Flaming Lips, and I was with him when I met Modest Mouse, and we also saw Jimmy together. Nice. So yeah, I remember this, and like most people who bought the album, I bought it simply because it had the track Insensitive on it. Insensitive was recorded by Jan Arden. It was released on her 1994 album, Living Under June. Living Under June was produced by the late Ed Cherney, who early in his career had spent six years working as an assistant engineer under Quincy Jones. The first album he worked with with Quincy was Michael Jackson's Off the Wall. He also worked on albums with Iggy Pop, Bonnie Raitt, Sting, Eric Clapton, Jackson Brown, Bob Dylan, The Rolling Stones, Lenny Kravitz, Keb Moe, and Buddy Guy, as well as doing audio work for movies like... A Mighty Wind, The Bourne Legacy, and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He won four Grammys and one Emmy. He passed away in October of 2019, but of the over 350 albums that Cherney worked on in his career, he ranked Living Under June as the one he was third most proud of. Really? No. 
What I found mildly amusing on Wikipedia is the Wikipedia page for the song starts off calling Jan Arden a Canadian singer-songwriter. She is a singer and songwriter from Canada. Okay. But then it immediately points out that this song itself specifically was written by songwriter Anne Lore, not Jan Arden. Interesting. Anne Lore who did write the song, was herself a singer-songwriter who had been working as a waitress in a restaurant in Calgary, Canada, And she wrote Insensitive as a response to an unfavorable end to an affair with one of the chefs. In a quote taken from her website and talked about writing Insensitive, saying, I sat down at my electric piano in the basement of a rented house I shared with four roommates, broke and brokenhearted, full of pain and angst, and wrote Insensitive. It took me probably less than half an hour, and I walked away feeling much better for it, and much hipper to Prince Charmings who aren't really into you. <laughs> Jan Arden heard and performed the song at a club in Calgary, and optioned the song for her second album, which she was working on at the time. And like the song Insensitive, most of the other songs on the album were also written in a basement, because I guess since Canada is a cold, dead wasteland, there's nowhere else to write. I would think it would be cold in the basement, too. But at the time of writing the album, Jan was living in a basement apartment directly under her landlady, who, spoiler alert, was named June. I see what she did there. As previously mentioned, yes, the album did come out a little early for what we normally would be taking a look at since it dropped in 94. However, no one outside of the Great White North paid any attention to this album at all or the song Insensitive until it got picked up and used in the 1996 Christian Slater film Bed of Roses. The movie itself only did okay, but it still managed to give the song a second wind and people outside of Canada finally started giving the song a listen during our freshman year. Insensitive spent three weeks at number one on the Canadian charts. It also hit number one in Australia. It reached number 40 in the UK, 44 in New Zealand, 50 in Scotland, 97 on the Eurochart Hot 100, and even got picked up for use in Italy on a commercial for a department store. In the U.S., it reached number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number 4 on the Billboard Adult Contemporary chart. So people were into this song. But yeah, apparently. As I've been going through and re-listening to this, I've been having the exact same thoughts that I distinctly remember having the first time I picked up and listened to the album as a whole. And that is that other than insensitive, it's kind of super hard to listen to this album. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, Jan has a good voice, and maybe because she's a fellow Canadian, or just because it was a popular sound at the time, on a lot of the tracks, her vocals sound like maybe instead of doing her own thing, she should be fronting an Alanis Morissette cover band. <laughs> and throughout the album, she's able to take her vocals into other places that become reminiscent of other popular female vocalists of the day, like Natalie Merchant and Sophie B. Hawkins, and as is the case with Insensitive itself, she manages to pull off a very impressive Lisa Loeb, which the track as a whole, with the exception of the keyboard bits at the opening, feel like it could have been a B-side from the Tales sessions. And I'm sure that most people who love Lisa were confused for a minute the first time they heard the song to learn that it wasn't her. Nice. We do like Lisa Loeb. Indeed. But again, beyond insensitive, I have a really hard time getting into and getting through Living Under June. It's not a good album. 
Yeah, I wish it wasn't the case. I do. I don't ever want anyone to put a bad album out. At least anyone who like maybe makes a song like Insensitive that I end up kind of being into. I want the rest of the album to be good. Yeah. Because like I said, I dig her voice, but musically there's a quality to it that sounds much too much adult contemporary soft rock. And even beyond that, to put it another way, musically it feels very much like any of the praise albums that Karen would put on while driving us around in the van. (laughs) Oh gosh, adult contemporary Christian was the worst. And even the lyrics of the album's lead single and opening track, Could I Be Your Girl, hit a point where they start to sound a little more Jesus-y than your average pop song should. (laughs) And I quote, He's bringing sweet salvation. He's every fear and every hope. He is the universe, the love you've been imagining. Oh my lord. Oh my lord. So, yeah. That's creepy. It's like when Eric Cartman started a band. (laughs) But he could never go platinum. (laughs) There was a lot of things that, in theory, she did right with the album. And she even managed to get Jackson Brown on track eight, which is called Unloved, for a soft duet ballad backed by some nice, light nylon guitar string plucking. And if the song were left just at that, it might have worked. But for some reason, there's this forced bit of extended keyboard notes that are just under everything and break the spell and make it feel very dated in all of the wrong ways that track like the rest of the album ends up not holding up and i hate to say it but even insensitive is debatable it's got a little bit of a weird keyboard thing at the beginning if it was all acoustic guitar driven or backed by duizel zappa like a proper lisa loeb song should be (laughs) then it would be inarguably timeless but there's still something to a good song about heartbreak and this one despite the flaws still manages to tap into that vein which is why maybe it's been covered by flemish musician jasper stilvernick okay canadian punk band the decay and country music darling leanne rhymes Speaking of songs of heartbreak and whatnot, it raises the all-too-important question of if High School Tom was going to put together a compilation of songs to speak to his poor emo heart, what songs would you include? Oof. When I was sad. I would have just put on Christy Front Drive, honestly. What year of high school and what do I have access to music-wise? Valid. Let's go just all of it. Let's say we're making a tape. You have side A, I'll do side B. I would include Love Song by The Cure, Black by Pearl Jam, Fade Into You, Mazzy Star, You Always Say Goodnight by Juliana Theory, Jewel. These foolish games. <laughs> Discarmed by Smashing Pumpkins. Did I already say that one? No. That's a great one. Hit or Miss, Newfound Glory. Hmm. <laughs> so much comment, so much judgment in that little. Hmm. No, I just honestly don't remember you ever listening to Newfound Glory is more of what that was about. Adding that and rounding out with Can You Still Feel the Butterflies? Nice. Solid. Okay, there we go. All right. I think the first thing that comes to mind from when I was moody and in love in high school probably would have to to go with Stabbing Westward. That's a good one. Stabbing Westward is really good. The thing is, it'd be a toss-up between the song Shame and What Do I Have to Do? But since those songs are back-to-back on Wither, Blister, Burn, and Peel, I never had to choose just one. (laughs) Nine Inch Nails Hurt. 
I mean, I could fill a whole list with just Cure songs alone. Absolutely. But if I were to pick just one, I would probably go with their song Apart from the album Wish. Nice. Seven Mary Three's Lucky. AFI's Clove Smoke Catharsis. Minerals Unfinished. Oof. The Get Up Kids' Long Good Night. And finally, Tori Amos's China. Nice. Is there anything that you would intentionally not put on your mix? Uh, it's not emo, and it's not a love song. So I would not put the new radicals, You Get What You Give. Ooh. This song always felt like a cheap knockoff of R.E.M. to me. Do you get that vibe? I'm going to have to take your word for it because I don't even remember this one. You don't remember New Radicals? I recognize the name, but I yeah, I, I can't place a single track of theirs. They only had one that got big. It's the You Get What You Give, and they go through this end of the world, like, just saying all the things. If you heard it, you would recognize it. I'm sure I would. You've got the music in you. Don't let go. Okay, okay, okay. I know that one. Yeah. Well done. I mean, no, I still don't get it. Keep going. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> they go to this thing where they're like, health insurance, rip-off lying, FDA, big, big big bankers lying, fake computer crashes dining, cloning while they're multiplying, fashion shoots with Beck and Hanson, Courtney Love and Marilyn Manson, you're all fakes, run to your mansions, come around, we'll kick your derriers. I don't recognize any of that, but when you sang it, the melody triggered it for me. So good job. Okay. Let's talk New Radicals. Okay. New Radicals is an L.A. band. They started in the late 90s, 1997. It was started by Greg Alexander. Greg was raised in a conservative Jehovah's Witness house and got his first guitar at age 12. He had a band at age 14, and they played through high school. He released a debut album called Michigan Rain in 89 at age 19, and it never went anywhere. In 1992, he formed up with Danielle Ann Brisbois. Danielle was on keyboards, percussion, and did the backup vocaling, and signed with Epic Records and released an album called Intoxifornication. And again, nobody noticed. Danielle was on the Norman Lear sitcoms All in the Family and Archie Bunker. She played Stephanie Mills. She also played Molly in the original Broadway production of the musical Annie. She had her first solo album that she did in 94 called Arrive All Over You. It did not get big success, but in Europe, it was a minor hit, and there's a cult following for it. She was described as an earnest and impressive effort that went largely unnoticed during the reign of gangster rap and grunge, and it was compared favorably to Jagged Little Pill. So she was part of it, but she wasn't an active big part in this one-hit wonder. She was on their other songs, like Mother We Just Can't Give Enough. And she did female vocals for Jehovah Made the Whole Joint for You. They formed, like I said, in 1997. Okay. And they released their debut album, Maybe You've Been Brainwashed Too, in October of 98. All right. And that's it. They broke up in 99. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. There's really nothing else to them. They did this single and they released one other single that did not do well at all uh, called Someday We'll Know. They did do a brief get together again back in 2001 for a one-off reunion, but that's really it. Wow. I'd say that sounds just like Primitive Radio Gods, but somehow Primitive Radio Gods are still a band and they've put out more albums that no one has paid any attention to. Yes, they have. 
I was talking to one of my coworkers, Vanessa, and I told her we were doing Primitive Radio Gods. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, I love the Primitive Radio Gods. What? And I said, well, you should check out our episode of One Hit Wonders. Did she get offended? No. I think she only likes that song, but uh, I thought it was really funny. Well, then, Vanessa, did you know that Primitive Radio Gods have like four more albums? I will follow up with Vanessa and find out and let the world know because inquiring minds want to know. Well, I think I did just follow up and she can respond in our comments. Good call. Or you can just talk to her at next work, whatever. Uh, I'll be talking to her. Both are fine choices. New Radicals, they had traveling musicians. So they had Paul Gordon, who played pianos for them. I don't know if you're familiar with Paul Gordon, but he did stuff with the B-52s and Goo Goo Dolls. They brought on Matt Lang and John Freeze for drums. John Freeze was part of the Vandals and Devo. He was also in Guns N' Roses, which he left to join a perfect circle with Maynard Keenan. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right? I love these band Venn diagrams you're creating in my mind. It gets weirder. He performed on the Young and the Hopeless Good Charlotte song. He was on Let Go with Avril Lavigne, Thankful by Kelly Clarkson. I mean, he's done a lot. He served as a touring drummer for three years with Nine Inch Nails and was on their 2007 and 8 albums. Wow. He did music with Bruce Springsteen, Rascal Flatts, Lana Del Rey. He gets around. Sounds like it. Yeah. They also had Paul McCartney's guitarist play with them for a while. This band is just kind of all over the place. And when I'm saying that this is all over the place, I'm saying it because they only existed for two years. They must have either had like good management or some sort of connections. They were calling in all their favors. Well, they were generally well received by music critics and they were praised for a range of atypical influences for modern pop rock. So then why didn't their other songs do better? I don't know. But reviewers, who we always listen to, mm-hmm. compared them to the early work of Prince and Mick Jagger, which I listened to the whole album and I did not hear. To promote their album, they went on tour, as bands do, mm-hmm. and they were on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and Nickelodeon's All That, as well as doing performances at the House of Blues in Chicago. They got a lot of radio play. The song reached number 36 on the Billboard's Hot 100. It was number five on the UK singles chart and number one on the RPM Canadian singles chart. So people liked it. And like I quoted earlier, he had some slams on celebrities that got him a lot of attention, whether good or bad. So I'm going to requote that lyric. It says, fashion shoots with Beck and Hanson, Courtney Love and Marilyn Manson. You're all fakes. Run to your mansions. Come around. We'll kick your derriere in. Marilyn Manson said, I'm not mad that Alexander said he'd kick my derriere. I just don't want to be used in the same sentence with Courtney Love. (laughs) He went on to say because of that, he would crack Alexander's skull open if he sees him. I do appreciate that he says Beck and Hanson. Yes, I do too. Because Beck's last name is Hanson. It is. That's clever. I'll give him props for that. Well, I've got a quote from Beck. Ooh. Beck said that he was in the grocery store and Alexander came running up to him so apologetic, saying, I hope you weren't offended. It wasn't supposed to be personal. And I was kind of pleased, but he's a big guy. (laughs) What's he going to say? Beck's a little dude, so I'll take that to mean he was probably just average. (laughs) He was probably a normal sized person. And then Hanson, of course, didn't care. They went on to work with Greg on another album later. They co-wrote a song with him. When talking about the other lyrics, Alexander was explaining it, saying that it was an experiment to see if the media would focus on the real issues or the celebrity ridicule, and we know where they landed. Everyone loves celebrity beef. They do. Even when it's perpetuated by somebody who isn't really a celebrity yet? Right. 
I guess the other things they complain about on their albums are corrupt and greedy politicians, corporate officers, credit card interests, the poor American social security system, and the American education system. Now, I will say, I listened to their album, but I skipped most songs because it's not very good. It just did not hold up. This song played everywhere, and it was all over pop culture. It made its way into the trailer for Adam Sandler's Big Daddy. It was in the film Bubble Boy, Scooby-Doo, Surf's Up. It was on the movie Click, and it was on TV shows. It was on Community, Jag, Dawson's Creek, and, of course, Daria. So, all that to say, this song is really obnoxious now. (laughs) I cannot stand it. The album does not stand up, neither does the song. Okay. And I feel kind of bad saying that. I think this is the first thing we've come on and listened to where we're like, skip the whole thing. It was a blip in music, and then it was gone. So... At least with Primitive Radio Gods, that single holds up. 100%. And a couple of the other songs are okay. Even with Jan Arden, which I couldn't listen to the album. But you could listen to the song. I can still tolerate the song because I love Lisa Loeb that much. We all love Lisa Loeb. I know. So, I'm giving that a two thumbs down. No? Okay. Are you going to end us on a stronger note than I tried to here, Mark? Yes, because... Of everything that we've covered so far, my final contribution is my favorite of the batch. Ooh, what is it, Mark? Have you ever heard of the band Small Fecal Matter? I can't say I have. Do I know their song, though? Maybe, but if so, you don't know them as Small Fecal Matter, because Small Fecal Matter was their very first name. They went through a handful of others before finally settling on Dogstar. Like Primitive Radio Guns and Jan Arden, who saw fame thanks to their tracks being included in feature films, Dogstar also achieved a greater degree of success as a band thanks to the movies, but in an entirely different way. Robert Melhouse, who has made appearances on TV shows like the live-action Tick, Dharma and Greg, Bones, Melrose Place, Seinfeld, Chicago Hope, Girlfriends, Judging Amy, and NCIS, plus a reoccurring role on the show Sports Night and 179 episodes of Days of Our Lives. <laughs> he also has the CSI hat trick, having appeared on CSI Crime Scene Investigation, CSI Miami, and CSI New York, each time as a different guest character. He also has film credits, which include movies like Speed, mm-hmm. Glimmerman, Ellie Parker, Some Kind of Beautiful, Plus, he had the honor of being the Hallmark Holiday hunk in such disposable Christmas movies as All I Want for Christmas and The Christmas Pageant. With Melissa Gilbert. (laughs) I'm impressed that you recognize that it was a Melissa Gilbert. But then again, I guess I shouldn't be surprised since this is up your other podcasts. Allie, have you guys covered that one yet? We have not. There's probably a reason for that. We've covered worse. Anyway, he also plays drums. And in 1991, Mailhouse was grocery shopping when a stranger approached him, commented on the hockey sweater that he was wearing, and asked Mailhouse if he needed a goalie. I don't know if those two men ever did get around to playing hockey, but I do know that that conversation somehow transitioned into them starting a band. Awesome. And so with Mailhouse on drums, the other gentleman on bass, they added guitarist and vocalist Greg Miller, and that was the beginnings of Small Fecal Matter. In addition to Small Fecal Matter, they went through a short list of equally absurd and kind of offensive names before settling on Dogstar, which, despite being the nickname of Sirius, which is, of course, the brightest star in the night sky, Mailhouse says the band name came instead 
from a Henry Miller novel. Huh. In 1992, they played their very first show as a band at a club called Raji's in L.A., and they had a last-minute edition for opening support, and it was a band who also ended up playing their very first show that night, and do you know who that band was? I do not. What year was it? 92. I bet if you ask Christine who opened for Dogstar for their very first show, she probably knows. Uh, let me see if I can text her real quick. Okay. But I'm assuming, since you're asking me this, it's probably going to be her favorite 90s band. Can I guess Weezer? Yes. Awesome. So Weezer played their very first show, opening for Dogstar, playing Dogstar's very first show. Rivers had called the club earlier in the day looking to see if he could book a show at some point in the near future. And they just happened to have the opening. And the, the venue owner talking to him was like, yeah, if you want to play tonight, you can play tonight. What's your band called? And Rivers, in a panic, said Weezer, which was the nickname his biological father gave him. Of course, he didn't have a great relationship. His dad was estranged and he was raised by his stepdad most of his life and had an awkward relationship with his own father. But Weezer was the nickname that his actual father would call him. And for some reason, that came out and it was their band name since. All thanks to small fecal matter. <laughs> in 1994, they brought in Brett Domros to provide additional guitars and backing vocals. And it's a good thing they did because not long after Greg left and Domros then got promoted up to frontman. And he has been the band's frontman and primary songwriter since. With Brett at the helm of the band, they did a lot of touring, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. They opened for David Bowie in Hollywood at the Palladium in 95. They were Bon Jovi's opening act for the Australia and New Zealand leg of his 1995 tour. And their last gig before breaking up in 2002 was in Japan. However, between playing with Weezer and breaking up, they did manage to put out an album called Happy Endings. And while Happy Endings is technically their second album, their first, for some reason, was only released in Japan. So Happy Endings is mostly accepted as their debut, although sometimes it is qualified as their American debut. It did give us their lone single, the song Corner Store. And I don't think Corner Store ever actually charted, so this is technically maybe more of an honorable mention as far as one hits go, but screw it. I like the song. I like the band. <laughs> they can't all be wallflowers with two songs that chart and only one of them good. <laughs> I've never seen Dogstar. Okay. I have seen Weezer, so I feel like there's at least a connection there. And I have also seen the band Phoenix TX, but this was before they changed their name. And when I saw them in 98 opening for Blink-182 at Fitzgerald's, they were still going by River Phoenix, which was a name that was inspired because of Dogstar. Before River Phoenix had settled on a name, they were just out driving around downtown Houston, and they saw this long line of people winding down a couple of blocks, and they realized that it was a line of people waiting to try and get into see a Dogstar show, and that sparked conversation amongst themselves about how, regardless of whether a band was good or not, people would shell out money to stand in line all for a chance to see a celebrity like Keanu Reeves. Have I mentioned yet that Keanu Reeves is the bass player? You haven't. Okay, so Keanu Reeves is also the bass player. Anyway, since they were looking for a band name for themselves, and Keanu was good personal friends with River Phoenix, and River Phoenix was the first person they could think of who was actually cooler than Keanu himself, they decided to go with that as their band name. Huh. Until the estate of 
River Phoenix tried to sue them over the use of the name, despite the fact that they had misspelled it on purpose to avoid a lawsuit. But they had label pressure, and they hadn't come up with anything good, but they were running out of time before they needed to have something to press on their CD, and they just went with Phoenix TX. I don't know if they were ever fully satisfied with that. But I did also see Phoenix TX in spring of 2001 at, I think it was like the Modesto County Fair. At some county fair in California, I won a goldfish. (laughs) So sure, it's kind of a stretch to make a personalized high school connection to Dogstar, but that's all I've got. Plus, Happy Endings did technically come out in July of 2000, but Corner Store dropped a month before that, which may have technically after graduation, but seeing as I didn't graduate on time and had to do summer school, I think I can still slide it in on that technicality. Okay. It's one that, going back and listening to, I've actually enjoyed, and not just when compared to the other couple of records that we've already talked about. Having Keanu in the band helped the band get press, but they were still pretty solid. It's not earth-shattering in any way, and they don't reinvent rock. It's not hard, it's not soft, but it stands up there with a handful of other bands from the late 90s and early aughts who managed for a little while to put out some solid medium rock. I'd put them in the same boat as other bands that I don't know if you remember Creeper Lagoon or Flicker Stick. I remember Creeper Lagoon. I don't remember. What was the other one? Flicker Stick? Mm-mm. That's okay. They had one hit, and I don't remember what their hit was, but I do remember them because they also had another song called Chloroform, The One You Love. (laughs) By no means does Once Every Two Weeks endorse chloroforming people. No. We cannot officially endorse that, but, you know, it's, it's a clever song name. It is hard to find an article from the 90s that talk about Dogstar without talking about how Keanu Reeves is all that anyone seems to want to talk about with regards to the band. Yeah. And a few articles, once you push past that awkwardness, you do hit some real meat. And an article from the LA Times in 97 said, The strength is Domros, whose approach draws from the 70s-based introspective songwriter movement in rock. Though there is an element of tension running through his songs, there is also a bit of unyielding positiveness of American heartland rock. His singing is earnest and affecting. Reeves and Mailhouse are serviceable as musicians, but they tend to be a bit anonymous. And an article from Pop Matters in July of 2000 echoed the sentiment, saying, To his credit, Reeves doesn't seem to be using the group as a vehicle for self-promotion. He is a mere sideman and dog star, just the bass player. The band is really a vehicle for singer-guitarist Brett Domrose. While Reeves's fame certainly couldn't have hurt Dogstar's chances of landing a record contract, some fans and detractors of the actor are sure to seek this album out due to sheer curiosity. Dogstar is hardly a group of... Of no talents. Domrose provides a capable vocalist and musician and a strong songwriter of straightforward guitar pop. Reeves and drummer Rob Mailhouse are adequate, if not electric performers as well. At times, the band sounds a bit like Matchbox 20, mostly due to Domrose's passionate delivery, but Dogstar songs have better hooks and are less homogenous. Some of this music might even be dubbed power pop were the vocals and guitars not so gritty. And I've got to say, for a review from 2000 saying that they're like Matchbox 20, but better, that's a pretty big claim because Matchbox 20 was huge at that time. They were. And they were selling out shows everywhere, right? Yeah. There were a couple albums in and people loved them. But I agree that by that point in their career, they were making fairly uninteresting music. Yeah. It's 3 a.m. I must be lonely. Back in that LA Times article, Dogstar frontman Domros addressed the Keanu Elephant saying... He's so in touch with the emotion of a song. I've auditioned lots of people for bands over the years, 
and so many of them are in it for the wrong reasons. Keanu's in it for the right ones. The music. He won't rest until he's nailed down the exact thing I'm thinking or the feeling in a song. Then he'll take that and put himself into it. He's in this for the music, not for a lark. I like it. Yeah, and this is before everybody was in love with Keanu. Was there that time? There was, because he started this right after the first Bill and Ted movie. Think about that. You think about his timeline from Bram Stoker's Dracula to Devil's Advocate to Constantine. Yeah. Everybody loved The Matrix, but people still necessarily weren't in love with Keanu when The Matrix first came out, right? Right. I feel like it really wasn't until John Wick that Keanu became one of those universally loved people. Right. So yeah, so not everybody was all about him, and it's nice that he was willing to take the band seriously for the sake of the music. And he did take it seriously enough that while he wasn't always able to make it his top number one priority, they did still manage to sneak in some weekend tours and a decent amount of one-off shows while Reeves was filming one of his little indie movies known as The Matrix. (laughs) It's funny to think of that as ever an indie movie, isn't it? Now, compared to the rest of the album, Corner Store as a track was maybe a bit more pensive. Okay. Not quite mellow, just a little down-tempo from where the rest of the songs on a Happy Ending lived. Most of the tracks managed to have a good, upbeat energy to them. You could even say, almost, that they have positivity to them. Like some of the reviews said, there's a kind of brightness and an earnestness, but it never comes off in any any way that feels kind of hokey or weird. The way that when bands try to be too bright, too happy... They even managed to pull off a cover of Superstar by the Carpenters without sounding cheesy when Domro sings Baby, 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 Oh Baby, which is an impressive feat all on its own. And they do a great job of owning that song, making it feel original, making it feel very much their own or their own-ish, because that track does kick off with a pre-programmed beat that feels very similar to the opening of Garbage's Milk. So the track is kind of a jam. I've also really been feeling the tracks slipping away, and especially track number three, Enemies, which nicely pulls out some moments where instead of just singing, Domros breaks down and gives some spoken word bits. We don't hear that much anymore, do we? No. Happy Endings as a whole, it ain't too shabby. It's listenable, and more importantly, they manage a sound that, while not sock-rocking, doesn't fall into tonal space of sounding dated into a specific era of rock the way the Rocket did. And I think it's fairly easy to say that both Corner Store and Happy Ending as an album hold up just fine. I'm going to have to go listen to these. I didn't know that you were doing this until just now, so I'm curious to see what I think. I am too. I remember I picked it up back in the day, and I remember listening through it, and Corner Store was the standout to me then, but I remember not hating the rest of the album, and I just haven't listened to the album probably in a good 15, 20 years, but this may be even better than I remember it being. And when it comes to the Keanu factor, he isn't showboating. Heck, half the time, you don't even think about the bass because... It's just sitting low in the mix, blending with the guitars, offering support like it should. Because it's a bass? Unless you're Flea or Getty Lee or Les Claypool. Which leads us to one more quote that I will let serve as my final thought on this album. If Reeves' high profile has provided Dogstar with an unusual amount of publicity for such a young group, let's hope it does not unduly hinder the band's chances of being taken seriously. For although Happy Endings isn't a remarkable album, it is a strong one that shows promise. The album provides Dom Rose a showcase for his composing and performing talents while giving Reeves' detractors little ammunition. Nice. Yeah, I think that's about as flattering as they could have hoped for back in the day. 
And so while it was sad for fans of Keanu Reeves as a musician when they broke up in 2002, the good news is they've gotten back together. Yay! They even have new music out. They put out a single recently, and they say they're working on a whole new album. How's the new single? I haven't listened to it yet. I've been trying to just stay focused on this. Okay. Kind of waiting for us to finish with this before I go check it out, because if that isn't as good, I didn't want that to sour this. So in your research as you were going through, what was the most standout thing to you? Was there like a new song that stood out or was it just the fact that the Wallflowers had two singles that charted? Well, that was surprising, obviously, since I chose this for my one hit wonder that became two hit wonder. Mm -hmm. I think that New Radicals got back together in the 2020s. That was shocking to me. (laughs) That was the most surprising thing that you came across? Yeah, I was shocked that a band like that came back. Yeah, that's fair. Primitive Radio Gods having multiple albums, I think, was maybe one of the biggest shocks for me. I had no idea they had more than one, much less four. Yeah. I was less surprised to know that Jan Arden had more albums, and she's continued to put albums out. That makes sense. Yeah. I haven't listened to any of them, so I don't know if maybe some of the newer stuff holds up better, or if the quality's still kind of weird on those. But I don't know if I'm quite excited for, but maybe just a step or two down from there to see what Dogstar does. They do have a tour announced, which I've been debating whether or not I care enough for that. If they come to Tulsa, I'll probably go. Nice. This was a little bit more fun than I anticipated, Mark. It was. I enjoyed it. Even learning about bands that I couldn't care less about, like Jane Arden and New Radicals, was uh, an interesting experience. Indeed. I look forward to see what we do when we cover a real album and a real band in a fortnight. Join us next time as I bust out the lipstick and eyeliner so we can talk about Robert Smith, The Cure, and their 2000 release, Bloodflowers. Until then... Tell us what your favorite one-hit wonders from the 90s are, and it might make our list. Alright, well, thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Once Every Two Weeks. two weeks is sponsored in part by Burrow Baracho Records and the Geek Lounge.